Good afternoon. I think we can get started. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute and editor of the Cato Journal. It's a pleasure to welcome to this book forum uh, the case against the Davis-Bacon Act uh, by Armand uh, Thibault, uh, not Thibault, but Thibault, uh, and uh, Maurice Boskin, who's an expert on labor law, will be commenting uh, on Armand's uh, book. Uh, that'll be followed by a Q&A, so you'll have a chance to ask some questions. Um, and then we'll have a luncheon up on the second floor uh, after the event's over. Uh, as you know, the Davis-Bacon Act's been around for a long time. It was passed in 1931. Uh, it sets wages at prevailing levels, which typically means near or at the union wage rate for workers on billions of dollars of public works programs. Uh, Armand argues that the law is not in the public interest. It inflates construction costs at taxpayers' expense, expands the power of unions, and undermines freedom of contract. Uh, also, the law is impossible to administer fairly and has been improperly sustained through active participation by the U.S. Department of Labor uh, for the exclusive benefit uh, of organized labor. Uh, it's interesting in these presidential debates, not a word has been said about organized labor. Uh, Armand argues that if it's not repealed, Davis-Bacon will continue to add billions of dollars to the cost for taxpayers, interfere with freedom of contract, and uh, lead to uh, a huge inflation of federal and state uh, public works programs. Uh, we've had this American... Uh, uh, Reinvestment Act, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, that's been uh, instituted uh, since the financial crisis. And I drive in New York Avenue every day from Baltimore, and they've been working on this bridge on New York Avenue for four years. I never see anybody there, uh, and I'm sure they come under Davis-Bacon uh, uh, prevailing wage laws. Uh, so it's, it's just like throwing money down a rat hole, uh, and people should be very upset about it. Uh, Armand certainly upset about it. He gives 54 reasons uh, for repealing it. Uh, he's not going to mention every one of those today, but he'll give an overview of, of, of his argument. Uh, Armand uh, Tiblow is the director of the Olin Institute uh, book program and a, a member of the board of the Olin Institute. Uh, he's an expert on labor law. He's written extensively on the Davis-Bacon Act and other prevailing wage laws and on public employee unions, including a recent article in the Cato Journal. Uh, we did a special issue of the Cato Journal on uh, our unions good for America. And uh, Armand had a very good piece in there uh, entitled Unions, the Rule of Law, and Political Rent-Seeking, which I highly recommend. This is online for free, by the way, if you go to www.cato.org. Uh, He's the author of 11 books on labor law and economics uh, and numerous articles, especially in the Journal of Labor Research, uh, which was pioneered by our friend uh, Jim Bennett uh, at George Mason University, who's here today. Uh, Armand earned an undergraduate degree in aeronautical engineering at Princeton, which is a good background for labor law, I guess. Uh, an MBA at the Wharton School and a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's taught at the University of Maryland, where he gave up a tenure 
tenured position as an associate professor of management to start his own consulting firm. So he's one of the few people that I know that have left academia with a tenured position to go out into the real world and uh, take some risks. Uh, more interestingly, he lives in an old firehouse in Baltimore on Saratoga Street uh, and an abandoned uh, town dump near Charlesville. Of course, he built a nice house down there. He's got a lot of privacy. Uh, he flew his own plane for many years. I'm not sure whether he's still flying or not, but he'd fly around the country for his uh, consulting firm. Uh, he's a partner or was a partner in uh, Joe's Farewell uh, Violins. In fact, if you go to his uh, office uh, at the old firehouse in Baltimore, he's got uh, violins on the wall. It's a fascinating office, actually. Uh, he was a draftsman and test lab statistician at the uh, Tiblow Aircraft Company and a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. I know he likes good wine and berets, and he owns a small hydroelectric uh, public utility. In fact, if you look at the book, uh, and you look at his picture here, he looks like a French wine merchant, uh, which is nice. Uh, uh, our commenter, who I'll also introduce at this time, uh, Murray Baskin, uh, is partner at Venable Law, firm's labor and employment uh, law practice group in Washington. He's also general counsel for Associated Builders and Contractors, ABC. In fact, um, since uh, I wasn't really familiar with this organization, uh, when I saw the roster, I saw ABC was going to be here. And I thought, oh boy, ABC News is going to be here. I'm going to be happy. Uh, but it's the uh, Associated Builders and Contractors. Uh, his focus is on dealing with the National Labor Relations Board, uh, which I admire him for doing that, uh, the U.S. Department of Labor, and union pressure tactics. Uh, he's also a leader in the fight against uh, project labor agreements uh, and other problems facing uh, government contractors, such as the Davis-Bacon Act. Uh, Mr. Boskin has defended the rights of employers uh, at all levels of the federal and state courts, including service as a lead counsel before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he's listed as one of the top 100 labor lawyers in the country by the Labor Relations Institute. He's written numerous articles on labor law and is co-author with, with Armin and uh, Armin's old the uh, thesis advisor at, at, at uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, Herbert Northrup, who's very well known in this, in this field, uh, of a book called Construct, uh, construction Union Tactics to Regain Jobs and Public Policy, published by the Olin Institute at George Mason University. Uh, he holds an undergraduate degree from Harvard and a law degree from the University of Florida, where he was senior editor of the Law Review. Let's help welcome both speakers today. Well, thank you very much, Jim. There's some things in there that I didn't even know about myself, I think, but uh, a wonderful introduction. Uh, look, a friend of mine said that only Davis-Bacon junkies would show up today because the title of my book doesn't describe or identify what the Davis-Bacon Act is or does. Well, look, I'll try to rectify that today uh, for those of you who have snuck in on false pretenses. Uh, but uh, why, for whatever reason you're here, I'm glad you're along for the ride, and I hope that you'll all learn something that you don't already know about the Davis-Bacon Act. It's obscure, but why go after it, and why go after it now? Well, first, the obvious reason for why to go after it 
is that it costs literally billions of dollars a year and negatively impacts the structure and future of the entire construction industry. But perhaps less obvious are the 54 reasons of the title of my book. Now, Jim has said that I can't go into those 54 reasons today because we only have the room until 5 o'clock. Uh, so what I'm going to do is do a condensation of perhaps five of them that uh, are not identical to the ones in the, uh, in the book, but give you an idea where we're going. Those five are these. First, the Davis-Bacon Act was passed on false premises. It was based on erroneous economic logic. It uh, was bad law from the very beginning. It fulfills no social need and fills no legislative void. It's totally obsolete and unnecessary. Two, it has fundamental structural problems. It never could have been implemented objectively. Three, it never has been implemented objectively, but rather with intense bias towards unions and union ways. Four, its output, the determinations that set the minimum wages that can be paid to construction workers on public works, particularly federal public works, are rubbish. They are worse than worthless. And five, the act has proven itself immune to reasonable reform and must be repealed in full. And before I go into those in detail, let me ask, uh, answer the second part of the question. The first part was why. The second part of the question is why now? And the simple answer to that is that the only time something like the Davis-Bacon Act is likely to get repealed is in the early days of a uh, newly conservative-oriented administration in Washington. It kind of looks now like we're going to have such a thing next month. But if we don't, undoubtedly, you will have wasted your time here this afternoon because nothing will go forward. But if we do get such an administration in Washington next month, uh, I'd like you to have this on your mind when the new administration takes over and is setting up its priorities. Uh, please. Uh, help put this in among those priorities. So, the five reasons. Number one, a little history. As I promised, here's what the Davis-Bacon Act looks like in its original, uh, 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 you know, original form. Pretty neat, huh? This is an act that covers one-sixth of the economy, the same way that Obamacare covers one-sixth of the economy. It manages, however, to do it in 2,700 fewer pages. So that's to its advantage. Uh, still, however, it's pretty vague. It's more of an exhortation than a prescription. It says, hey, keep paying, keep paying people on public works what you paid them before. And it doesn't go a whole lot beyond that. Nevertheless, this was a very contentious piece of legislation when it was passed. When was it passed? Most people don't realize this, but it was debated during the flush years of the 1920s. And it was passed by the Hoover administration in 1931, before the New Deal, before Roosevelt. It passed in 1931, probably on Jim Crow fears of itinerant Southern contractors dragging their cheap colored labor behind them who would come into New York State and snap up the new courthouse buildings. But that was just a false cover. The real reason for the Davis-Bacon Act was to let Congress avoid dealing with the third rail issue of the day, the extremely contentious issue 
of a federal minimum wage. None of us remember, because none of us are old enough, uh, how contentious that was. But a federal minimum wage, in fact, was not introduced until late in the Depression within the Depression, in 1938, towards the end of the New Deal. It's just that somebody forgot to throw out the Davis-Bacon Act, its precursor, when the NRA codes were declared unconstitutional in 1935 or when the FLSA was passed in 1938. All right, a related point. I've said that the uh, Davis-Bacon Act was based on bad economic logic. How can I say such a thing? It was premised on the idea that new federal, uh, federal demand for construction projects come into an area would drive wages down there. So new work is going to drive wages down in the area. Now, you remember Econ 101. You remember all those curves and graphs with the the downward sloping uh, demand curve, the upward sloping supply curve, and where the two meet, you have the clearing price. And when you get exogenous demand, new demand, to the area, you have another curve parallel to the first, and the clearing price moves up to the right every time for a product or labor or anything else. If you have new increased demand on the same labor supply, you drive the clearing price up, not down. So the Davis-Bacon Act was based on a fundamentally misconstrued economic logic. Now, it's not the first uh, bill to have done that in the history of the republic, nor is it the last. I mean, consider the actual name of the Obamacare thing uh, and what kind of economic logic we have in calling that thing, uh, what is it? I can't even remember. It's the Affordable Health Care Act? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to find out about it a little faster than Davis-Bacon. But anyhow, going back to Davis-Bacon, there have been only two substantive modifications to the Davis-Bacon Act in its entire history. The first occurred in 1935. It was a restatement of the Act in 1935. It's the one that governs today. I'm not going to put it up on the, uh, on the screen. Uh, it's only two or three pages, a little longer than the first one. But uh, its uh, main purpose was to add teeth to uh, the enforcement of Davis-Bacon. Uh, but in order to do that, it had to provide some definition of prevailing. Uh, you, can't you can't fault a contractor for failing to pay a prevailing wage unless you tell them what the prevailing wage is. Uh, so uh, uh, how was that handled by the Act? Well, the Act fluffed that. It said, hey, we don't know what prevailing means. We're going to leave it up to Frances Perkins, the FDR Secretary of Labor in 1935, and her successors to say what the prevailing rate is. And what she said, quite arbitrarily, is that the prevailing rate will be based on a physical survey of existing wage rates in the locality where the uh, work was going to be done. And it was going to be the survey rate to the penny, paid to at least 30% of the wage rates, 30% uh, of the individuals whose wage rates show up in that survey. And if there was no 30% plurality who received the same wage rate to the penny, then it would, the prevailing rate would be the, the mean, the weighted average of all of the rates in the survey. Now, that rate to the penny part was the first bone thrown to the unions, who at this time were rapidly becoming the favored institution of the entire New Deal. Why did it favor unions? Well, think about it. Union workers worked a contract. 
the contract specifies how much they get paid. Non-union workers work at market rates. Their employers can't consort or connive or contrive or anything to fix wages. So naturally, there's variability, much greater variability among non-union wages than among union wages. So this 30% rule was a way to you know, encourage the prevailing rate to be at the union rate. The second substantive change came in 1984. That's when uh, Mr. Baskin's forces at the Associated Builders and Contractors uh, and their legislative friends uh, tried to get the act repealed, uh, but failed and had to settle instead for a substitution of a 50% rule for the 30% rule. So now, uh, for a rate to be determined, it had to have an actual majority of the rates in the survey. Well, one would think that that would be a very significant change. It should have made a big difference in the number of rate determinations set at the union rate, because they have to have an actual majority of rates at the same rate. One would be wrong. It turned out that the 50% rule made substantially no difference in the proportion of union rates determined to prevail in prevailing rate determinations. I'm going to give you a quiz here. Time for a quiz. Point number two, the Davis-Bacon Act can't be administered fairly. Here's some wage rates. Let's say that we've got some non-union wage rates, three, four, and five, and some union wage rates, nine, nine, nine. What's the prevailing wage in that distribution? Well, the, the answer, realistically, is that there isn't one. Two-thirds of the rates are between three and five. But you can't have a prevailing rate that says it's about four. You have to have some specific number, so that doesn't work. Nine, the nine rate would have been chosen by the original Davis-Bacon uh, Act between 1935 and 1984. Uh, but boy, is that a prevailing rate? One-third of the people in the distribution receive that rate, so it prevails? What kind of nonsense is that? But let's look at the modern alternative. What the current Davis-Bacon Act 50% rule says, the prevailing rate is in this distribution, is 5.67. It's the weighted average of all the rates in the survey. All right, well, a couple of things to note about that. One is that 5.67 is a rate that's higher than 60%, 67%, in fact, of the rates in the survey. The second thing is that 5.67 is a rate that was paid to nobody in the survey. So we have this wonderful thing where the prevailing rate is a rate that was paid to no individual in the distribution that the survey represents. Now, there are dozens and dozens of different administrative uh, solutions to the prevailing problem. Uh, other labor uh, administrators uh, in similar positions, managed to find the prevailing rate to be the simple average, uh, to be the mean, the medium, the mode, a constrained plurality at 30%, 40%, or 50%, the plain union rate, and in many varieties, uh, whatever the secretary determines. All of these are equally arbitrary, and all of them prevail only in violation of ordinary semantics. In fact, if a prevailing wage is not intuitively obvious, it doesn't exist. If you can't look at it and see this pile of rates and say, hey, you know, most people are getting that one, 
it doesn't exist. But the problem with Davis-Bacon and other prevailing wage laws is that everybody has to be paid one. So if it doesn't exist, you still got to be paid one, you got to be paid somebody else's prevailing rate. We'll go on to point number three. The prevailing rate has never been administered fairly. You say the example I just gave is contrived. I've made up those numbers, it's contrived distribution, sure enough. But you know what? Reality is a whole lot worse. Remember that the only way that a purely union rate can be established by a, uh, a prevailing rate uh, survey is if it is found to be paid to a majority of the people in that survey. An absolute majority, 50% or more. All right, quiz time again. Does anybody know what proportion of the construction industry is represented by organized labor? How many organized labor people are there out there compared to the total number of people in the construction industry? Well, I'll tell you that in the civilian population overall, uh, about 8% of the civilian workforce is organized. Now, construction is a little more organized than some other things. Not as organized as public unions, but a little more organized as some other things. And it's maybe 10, 12% of the uh, construction workforce that's organized. And if you look just at scheduled labor in the construction industry, that is the workmen and mechanics who receive hourly rates that would be affected by prevailing rate instead of clerks and so forth, that maybe the range is 18 to 23% of the people in the construction industry are organized. Let's, for shorthand, let's say 20%. Nowhere in the country, except in isolated, perhaps urban pockets, do unions control a majority of the workforce. And in no trade or subspecialty trade do unions represent a majority, with the single exception of high steel erection, a subset of iron workers. And in that subset, unions represent a bare majority, 53, 54, something like that percent of the workforce. OK, another quiz. Envision that I've got a pot here. Okay, This pot contains 100 balls. Okay, 20 of them are red, and 80 of them are green, blue, white, whatever, some other colors. Mix them up, dip in there, and take out a random sample of 10. What are the chances of getting five or more red balls in a sample that is drawn from a population that is only 20% red? Statisticians among you will say that, hey, not very big. It's beyond the three sigma limits. Now, maybe a chance in a 1,000 of getting five red balls in a sample drawn from a distribution that's 20% red. Well, now consider that it's exactly the same thing in prevailing rate determinations. What are the chances of drawing a union rate from a population that's 20% union if the survey will only recognize the union rate to exist in 50% or more in the survey are union? Just about the same chance, isn't it? About a chance in a 1,000. All right, now look, I did some tallies recently of prevailing wages that exist right now in the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has 67 
federal Davis-Bacon determinations that cover the state for the four types of construction. And I went into those, uh, partially because Pennsylvania is a, a good subset of the United States. Its demography, its population, distribution, union proportions, and so forth are, are pretty close to the, the national averages. Uh, and it's a little easier to count uh, in the state of Pennsylvania than it is to count all over the country where there are 3,007 counties and four types of construction and a vast number of things. So anyhow, I counted in Pennsylvania. And I counted up in Pennsylvania how many jobs and job classes uh, exist uh, are, are specified in those 67, 64 uh, federal determinations uh, to, to have prevailing rates prescribed for them. You know how many there were? There were 2,044 construction jobs or categories of construction workers that are identified in the current Davis-Bacon surveys in Pennsylvania. Okay, best guess from you guys, how many union rates did I find among those 2,044 construction jobs or classes? You know what the rules are and how prevailing rates are identified and determined. So maybe being generous about it, you'd find maybe eight, 10, gee gosh, let's go overboard, 25 rates that might show up at the union rate. You know how many I actually found? 1,666. 1,666 out of 2,044 rates prescribed right now in the state of Pennsylvania by federal prevailing wage requirements are set at the union level. 82% of all of the rates and those determinations are set at the union level. level. Across the country, I didn't do this count. I made an estimate uh, five or six years ago. It may have changed a little bit, but it's not by much. Uh, of the entire country. And I found that across the entire country, close to 30%, 29%, in fact, of all the wage determinations in the entire United States set not one or two prevailing rates at the union level, not even 82% at the union level. They set 100% of their prevailing rates at the union level. Well, the Department of Labor says, hey, gosh, you know, these are uh, 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 results that come from safe union territories. They're so safe that we don't even bother to do surveys in these territories. But let me tell you, my friends, the DOL may present this as reality, but as a matter of statistical determinancy, it can't happen. All right, well, if it can't happen, why does it, why does it I think you can imagine the answer. It happens solely and only because the DOL actively and brazenly supports union rates and ways in all of the mechanisms of conducting surveys and publishing determinations. And it does so in violation of its charge, uh, in violation of the stated uh, uh, and, in, uh, and implied intents of the law. It does it sometimes in violation of its own administrative guidelines, and it does it always in violation of any shred of fairness. There are a lot of examples in my book. Let me show you just one. This next uh, slide is a listing of the wage rates found by survey in six counties in southwestern Pennsylvania for a relatively obscure trade or drywall finishing. This is, a, these are, this is an actual survey here, done in 2003 for residential construction in those areas. The ABC was very active in getting rates into this survey. It got 32 people in this. Uh, but the unions are very active, too. They got, uh, you know, your, your 
your, your four people at, at 2893 to 2896, you know, all these union rates here. They got a lot of people into the survey. 74 rates of the survey. Gee, there are major jobs, like operating engineer, that are set in the state of Pennsylvania by, in the same survey based on six survey submissions. Here we've got 74. All right, well, you know how rates are calculated now. We've just been over it. What's the prevailing rate that should uh, come out of this distribution? Well, let's see. Uh, we've got 32 various non-union rates, 14 to 19. Uh, we have more union rates than that, but gosh, some of them are 2108, and some are 2111, and some are 2964. All right. What do you suppose the Department of Labor came up with as a prevailing rate for this? I'll save you the trouble of getting your pencils out and doing a weighted average. It's going to be wrong. Uh, well, here's what the answer was down here in the bottom. The prevailing rate that the Department of Labor found from that distribution is dollar mark zero, zero, zero. Wow. What is that? Well, that's simply the DOL shorthand of saying, hey, we've decided it's a union rate. We ain't going to tell you which one. Three quick points. The drywall finishers are not unique. I found in the same survey five different union rates for carpenters that, like these, were counted as identical to the penny, although they differed by quite a lot. I found six different rates for cement masons, eight for electricians, nine for bricklayers, ten for painters, that were all, like these, counted as identical to the penny, regardless of how much they differed. I found within the same craft, $14 apart, rates were counted as identical to the penny by the Department of Labor in making its determinations. I found rates that differed from one another by 40% that were counted by the Department of Labor as identical to the penny. Second point, when the drywall uh, finishers rate was published in 2003, uh, or 2004, I forget when it actually came out, and I also forget exactly what it was, but it was published at a rate that was none of these. It was $21.84 or something like that. So I don't remember exactly what it was. But it was a rate that was associated with the $21 uh, range, the 2108 or 2111, rather than the 28 or $29 range, and I can't explain that. I mean, that's a minority rate within the union segment that somebody in DOL decided was the proper prevailing rate for that trade. How it came about, I cannot tell you. There's no way of knowing. But yeah, that's the way it is. Third point, by 2011, there had been quite a lot of transformation of the rates for drywall finishers going on. Uh, I won't go into it. Uh, but the drywall, uh, but the rate for uh, drywall finishers in one county of these six is uh, still set at the union rate. You know what it is now? It's not 21 or close to $37, over $37 an hour. This is 2003 to now, what is that, nine years? Yeah, well, gosh, that's a huge increase, isn't it? Oh, well, that's the way the Davis-Bacon Act works. Point number four. Prevailing rates, the output of this process, are dribble. 
I documented equal or greater evidence of pro-union bias at each of eight separate levels in the wage determination process from the collecting of survey data to the other end, the updating of determinations to the very latest union contracts. Among determinations now active, you can find determinations that split common job titles like laborer, operating engineer, into yeah, rates that were set based on people submitting wage rates for operating engineers or maybe even just for cranes that split in the determination into six or eight or even 13 different classes of laborers elaborately identified with different prevailing wage rates uh, required. Now, it may take a couple of pages to, uh, to, to identify what they are. I found determinations that properly set residential construction rates at the non-union level for some tiny rural county in Pennsylvania with maybe 75 or 100 construction workers total in the entire county workforce. But that same, based on that same workforce population, I find prevailing rates for building construction to be 100% union rates. For highway construction to be 100% union rates. For heavy construction to be 100% union rates. Based, allegedly, on the same population. You find uh, determinations with rates for hundreds of named specialties. But sometimes, none issued for common and necessary titles, sometimes not even for laborers. And almost never. Rates for modern jobs, such as computer or security wiring, insulation setters or blowers, fence erectors, basement excavators, form builders, truss makers, metal building erectors, pool installers, cabinet setters, drop ceiling installers, bobcat operators, et cetera, et cetera. These are modern job titles. They're not covered by Davis-Bacon rates. So if they're not covered by Davis-Bacon rates, or if laborers are not covered by Davis-Bacon rates, what are they supposed to be paid? somebody else's prevailing rate. You have to pay them some prevailing rate. If it's not theirs, it's somebody else's. You find determinations with rates set to four decimal places. 24.4655 for class one Teamsters, uh, 25.5678 for class one Teamsters. Boy, isn't that swell. You find with determinations with, with rates that differ by 26 per hour in five adjacent, elaborately identified parts of the same determination. Areas belonging to five different locals of the IBEW, all set for electricians, for IBEW members, uh, uh, in the same determination, $26 a part. You find determinations with rates for semi-skilled workers that are substantially higher than the rates for the journeymen they assist, et cetera, et cetera. The net result of the DOL's unrelenting bias towards union rates and practices has resulted in determinations across the board that are completely dysfunctional and totally arbitrary. They are quite literally rubbish, but they are the law of the land, and a contractor must obey them if he wants to work on federal projects. Need more proof? The current residential rate determination for operating engineers in Beaver, Fayette, and Washington counties in Pennsylvania, I mentioned it before, was set on total survey submissions of six operator rates. There were four in one project, 
and one each on two other projects, all for crane drivers, uh, all for, uh, 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 for all three counties, six rates covering all three counties, back in 2003. Based on those six submissions for crane drivers, uh, this is the prevailing rate for operating engineers that now exists in those three counties. Isn't that wonderful? Look at that. What do we got? We got backhoes of the 180-foot uh, swing. We have derrick boats. We have uh, uh, Frankie pile machines, whatever those are, helicopters, locomotives, whirlies, boilers, refrigeration plants, steam jennies, tie tampers with multiple heads. This is a residential determination for three little counties in Pennsylvania. The one I like best is the one that I have here in red. You know, right now, in the state of Pennsylvania, in these three counties, there is a prevailing rate of approximately $50 an hour set for pipe dreams. I think that's wonderful. Point five, repealer reform. Back in the 1980s, uh, Mr. Baskin's group uh, managed to convince the then Reagan Department of Labor that it needed to establish prevailing rates for helpers. Uh, helpers are a kind of non-union workmen uh, who are semi-skilled. They assist people, they're on their way up, get on the job training and so forth. Uh, they're a category that exists almost entirely in non-union work. And because of that, uh, subsequent DOLs had a certain amount of trouble in implementing uh, wage rates for them. In fact, uh, as soon as the regulations were put in place by the Reagan Labor Department, the AFL-CIO sued uh, to block their implementation. And then when the Labor Department changed other hands later on, uh, over the next 19 years, the uh, then DOL and their friends in courts and legislators, le legislatures delayed, avoided, disregarded, or ignored uh, implementing the new regulations until finally in 2003, they simply decided that uh, uh, the uh, proposed change would simply be rescinded. So 9% of the construction workforce that are uh, non-union construction helpers, of the entire construction workforce, 9% of the total, are now officially disregarded when it comes to having prevailing rates set for them. What's the net result? If they don't have prevailing rates set for them, contractors have to pay them somebody else's prevailing rate, typically the prevailing rate for the journeymen that these semi-skilled workers assist. For a form this necessary and this simple will be fought to the death over so many years, what are the chances of reasonable reform taking place from within the system? In the book, you'll see the sad history of investigations of the wage, wage setting process performed by oversight agencies, GAO and OIG. GAO is the General Accounting Office. Now it's General Accountability Office. OIG is the Office of the Inspector General. They do oversight of the survey process by Department of Labor. After each of its 27 reviews before 1996, and its reviews in 1996, 97, 99, 2001, 2004, the Department of Labor has promised to do better. They should have, 
these agencies were finding error rates of 96, 98, even 100% in the surveys being performed. Labor said, hey, we'll do better. We need some new computers, a little more money. Over the years, they've gotten millions in money and whole piles of shiny laptops. And you know, their process hasn't gone anywhere near getting better. Why GM, or, uh, GAO uh, even went so far as to recommend that the Department of Labor hire a consultant. If you don't know how to run a survey, hire somebody who knows how to run a survey. Get them in here and they'll show you how to do it. No, that costs too much to hire an outsider to come in and develop a survey process that makes sense. And besides, we're so busy with our internal reforms that we just can't get into that. So, nothing. As to cost, the cost of the Davis-Bacon Act is at a minimum $5 billion a year, that's B with a, you know, billion with a B, in direct expense to the federal government, maybe four times as much if you count in the state acts that are related to the federal ones. But the cost is relatively unimportant if you compare it with the gains that would come from repeal. Now consider this example. Assume that there, of the four million construction workers in the company, country, that 800,000 of them uh, are working at some time of the year on federal construction projects, federal or state. Let's assume that these 800,000 are made 20% more efficient because of their elevated prevailing wages. Now we've seen that not all prevailing wages are union, but most of them are, so call prevailing rates and union rates the same for the purposes of talking about it. Now, the unions are very fond of saying, hey, you get what you pay for. You pay for more, you get better stuff. Well, let's give them that. Let's say that these people are 20% more efficient because they're being paid excess wages. It's not true, we'll go with it. Let's also assume that prevailing rates are only 25% higher than market. Again, it's not true, we'll go with it. Actually, union rates are typically 50% to 100% higher than non-union rates, and we've seen already the proportion of union rates that show up in these things. But again, we'll go 25%, very conservative. All right, now let's put those two things together. If the Davis-Bacon Act were repealed, 800,000 workmen being paid union rates of $38 an hour would be replaced by 960,000 workmen being paid rates of $30 an hour. Assuming that each of those workmen does government work for 1,000 hours a year, our government would save immediately off the top, what, $1.6 billion in direct expense. But in addition, a workforce equivalent in, equivalent in size to the entire population of Little Rock, Arkansas, would be at work in a good-paying job with on-the-job training, jobs that many people would sell their children to get, 30 bucks an hour. And not only that, you're saving all the unemployment costs that are associated with 160,000 people, and we know how much those are. All right, well, look at, through the simple process of eliminating the Davis-Bacon Act, we create a government program that not only creates jobs, but it rewards the government for doing it. Boy, is that ever different from the kind of stuff we've had over the last three years.
Sure, an army of DOL administrators who currently spend their lives updating determinations to the very latest union contracts would have to find something else to do. And, and sure enough, overpriced union workers would no longer have their privileges protected by the government. But I'm okay with that. I don't know about you. It sounds like a good trade-off to me. So I thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. Mr. Baskin is up next. Thank you, Armand, and thanks everyone for uh, being here. I, first, I just want to commend Armand. Uh, I've been doing this and working with the ABC. In fact, one of my first projects as a young associate uh, was back in the early Reagan administration trying to help uh, ABC defend the last meaningful reform of Davis-Bacon, which the Reagan administration did, and then the union sued to block block all of it. The courts eventually upheld most of it, but not the, uh, the helper issue. Uh, and it, it, for most of that time, Armhan has been working diligently to document the excesses, the ridiculousness, of the absurdity of Davis-Bacon as it's been enforced by the U.S. Department of Labor. Uh, I've come at it from the more practical perspective of working with contractors who are trying to live with this crazy law. Uh, most, certainly non-union contractors, when they take a government project, they have no idea that this is what it means and that these wage rates uh, these way excessive wage rates are going to be in effect, and that not only that, the union work rules may come with them, and often often do, unpublished union work rules that they have no idea how to comply with. But uh, Armand has, has stuck with it. There aren't very many people who will wade through all of those uh, dry, drywall finisher uh, wage rates in all, the, uh, in all the surveys. And then the unions have uh, produced studies to try to justify it, and he's re effectively rebutted those studies. Uh, his book, uh, his latest book, is really the culmination of uh, decades of efforts uh, to document what is so wrong about the act. Uh, Armin asked me to come in, on this, uh, in the forum make comments on, on what he said. Uh, I, I just want to mention a few things uh, also about Davis-Bacon, really, to reconfirm. Uh, what he said before we before we take the questions. Uh, to me, and, and Armand's thrown a lot of numbers at you, I think they're all very compelling ones. I, I think all you really need to know about it is what came out in the congressional hearing last uh, spring. Uh, it, it was this, that uh, the statistic there given was that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, federal, another agency, uh, said 14% of the construction workers are union, 14%. The Government Accountability Office, GAO, said in that hearing that 63% of all the wage rates established by the Department of Labor through this wage determination process were set at union rates. So 14%, 63%. Uh, as a result, a uh, huge premium uh, extra uh, price tag on all government construction because of the fact that this wage determination process is so wildly skewed in the direction of finding the union scale to prevail when, as Harman pointed out, it's statistically impossible with a, a small number of balls in the pot that the, uh, they kept getting, being picked out of the, uh, the lottery ball. I can only imagine if lotteries worked that way. Uh, somebody would uh, raise a stink about it. It would be a scandal. Uh, for some, I call this a secret scandal. No matter how many times it's talked about, no matter how many congressional hearings are held, nothing seems to be done. Uh, nothing to make it work. 
Uh, I'll give you another example that's based on, uh, I've heard the DOL, Department of Labor has come out with responses to things that we've said, things that Armand has said over the years. Uh, most recently, I've heard them say, well, if you look at uh, all the wage determinations, only a few of them are, are all union. Uh, most of them are a mixture of, of union and non-union rates. Uh, one of those that they count as a mixture is uh, Washington, D.C., right here, where there's a major project, a uh, couple of them going on, uh, being done uh, predominantly by non-union contractors, because in Washington, D.C., the actual union percentage is actually less than 10%, another thing that surprises many people. 90% of the workers here are non-union workers working for some of the largest construction companies, doing some of the most sophisticated work, and it's being done on a non-union basis. Well, there is, of course, a wage determination issued by the U.S. Department of Labor for Washington, D.C., and it uh, reflects 28 different skilled trades that they've come up with uh, what they think to be the prevailing rate for. Their idea of a mix is that one of those 28 is a non-union or weighted average rate. 27 of them are listed as union scale prevailing. Uh, this in an area where it's documented that 10, only 10% less of the workers are actually union. So something is wrong. Something is rotten with this system. Uh, and it's been pointed out over and over. And this is, by the way, as a result of the latest high-tech Labor Department survey efforts. Uh, computer forms and uh, the, that people are supposed to fill out and that this was supposed to facilitate a uh, new process in response to all the earlier Inspector General reports saying that it was all messed up. Uh, they've still clearly got it wrong and have uh, clearly stated that they're just not going to do anything about it. Now, another one of their Labor Department responses is, well, it's, it's the private sector's fault. It's the contractor's fault namely the non-union contractors who don't respond to their surveys in the same numbers as the union side. That's really one of the things that does skew the entire process. Instead of doing statistical sampling, as the Bureau of Labor Statistics does for most other types of uh, census-type uh, data, the Labor Department has insisted forever on uh, seeking out, sending out a form, a notice, to a few people and then saying, we will count only those survey forms that are sent in by specific contractors. It's why you get a situation like Armand described, where uh, six uh, workers are effect who are reported by a couple of contractors are setting the rate for the entire area where there may be hundreds of jobs going on. But the rest of them weren't reported. Labor Department takes this very minimal reporting by those who choose to report, which are typically 100% of the union people, because they know how important it is, and barely any of the non-union people. I, I would typically say 5% tops. And why don't the non-union contractors report? Well, just think about it. If you were a small businessman, as most of the non-union contractors are, or women, and you're trying to survive in a depression, uh, which the construction industry is in right now, uh, and you've got a lot of things on your mind, filling out a survey form and telling the government what you're paying your workers is probably not high on your list. That assumes you heard of this thing, the survey going on in the first place, and that assumes that the survey comes to the right person who knows what the Davis-Bacon Act is, 
which is not very many people, I think show of hands before you all came in, would not have uh, brought out too many hands. Uh, so, and then for them to actually look at the survey form, which I, ha I was going to show you all, is a detailed computer program of how they're supposed to fill out all these things. And it's not just wage rates, but fringe benefits besides. It's a very complicated process. Uh, most of them don't understand what it's for. Most of them are only doing private work in the first place. So they have no interest in helping the government set its wage rates. So for all of those reasons, uh, which have nothing to do with a deliberate skewing towards the union, the starting point is that there's a big advantage uh, for the union side. Combine it with the methodology that the Labor Department has used over the years, like just as Armand pointed out, non-union side, they have a lot of variable rates, whereas uh, the union all are under one contract, so they have another big edge that when you do it in this crazy way, you're going to wind up with the union rate as the prevailing rate when it clearly cannot be the true prevailing rate. And when you go back to what the act, uh, the people who passed the act claimed they were doing, it was to keep uh, itinerant uh, workers from outside the area from undercutting the existing market rate, the existing rates that were already being paid. Now, today, we have it totally flipped around. Uh, in an area like Washington, D.C., and you could pick many other areas of the country, where the work is dominated by the non-union sector, the market rate is the rate that they are paying. And instead of the government paying that rate, they're paying a wildly inflated rate paid by people who are brought in from outside, typically, because there are not union contractors here paying that rate. They're people coming from out of state uh, paying the higher rate. So now you have them, uh, instead of undercutting, they're overcutting, or whatever the opposite uh, word is for that. Uh, so Davis-Bacon has now been turned upside down. It, it's become a way to enshrine and uh, put a, a steel fence around uh, the union scale in places where they're not entitled to it. And the result is that the taxpayers on government projects are paying way more than they would be paying if it was a private development. Uh, so it's, it's a crazy system that we have gotten into. Uh, nothing has been done about it by this administration other than to expand it. Uh, I mentioned a big project going on uh, across town. In fact, we're involved in litigation about that project. There's no government money on the, uh, happens to be called the City Center Project uh, here in D.C. Even though there is no government money, the, the Obama Labor Department has issued a ruling that this project should be built using Davis-Bacon rates, uh, even though it was uh, understood by the district uh, and by the uh, uh, developers and contractors that was not uh, required, and it could be paid at market rates, namely non-union rates primarily. Uh, that's still in litigation. It's uh, hard to say uh, which way it will uh, play out. If justice prevails, uh, then Davis-Bacon will not apply. Uh, but it just is a symptom of this, the current administration doing, if anything, expanding Davis-Bacon. Certainly no, no, no thought of, uh, of repealing it, no thought of reforming it. Uh, impossible to say what would happen in a new administration. One discouraging thing about even during the Bush years is that there was no meaningful effort to fix some of the problems that uh, were highlighted even then. Um, it was left to the Labor Department. There were other priorities, and regrettably, uh, the Labor Department did not make changes. I mentioned before, the last meaningful reform was in the uh, Reagan administration. Um, and. Uh, 
So we're left with this existing situation. And uh, how long it's going to last, I think, it depends on taxpayers waking up and, uh, and actually doing something about it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's, you need analysis like is in uh, Armand's book. Uh, and uh, to, to make these kind of changes happen, we can only hope that uh, eventually someone will see the light and uh, do some of the common sense things that are necessary uh, to fix this, uh, this scandal that's been going on for a long time and probably is going to be with us for uh, a long time yet. Uh, so those are my comments. I think uh, under our drill, we can take some uh, questions uh, uh, for either of us, uh, primarily Armand's his show, uh, and we're happy to, uh, to answer them. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Um, I could see Armand's uh, background in aeronautical engineering statistics came in very handy uh, with his research on uh, Davis Bacon. Uh, you need a lot of patience, uh, I imagine, because you have to go through all these details, but then you see that there's not much done in Washington with respect to uh, either reforming or repealing the law. So uh, hopefully his book will uh, move us more in that direction. And I guess I'd like to offer the first question. Uh, since the benefits of these things are concentrated on small groups, union members primarily, uh, but the costs are dispersed among many people, you got this public choice problem. How do you overcome that particular problem? Maybe you could both discuss that, and then uh, we'll open it up to the floor. Uh, if you have a question, uh, please just raise your hand. There's a, a portable mic coming around, and then um, please uh, give your affiliation, and then keep your question short and directed to uh, uh, either one or both of the speakers. Uh, thank you. So. Well, as I understand, the, uh, the first question is uh, how do you uh, overcome the problem that the few are benefited but the many pay? Uh, and to me, the simplest answer, the one that I've put forward here, is to repeal the darn thing. Do away with it. That way you don't have the special privileges uh, being uh, directed to the few at the expense of the many. Why should they be directed to the few? What is it that makes unions so sacrosanct in the society that we don't even talk about them? Uh, in any negative way in, in times of major campaigns like now. I haven't heard unions mentioned in this campaign uh, at all, I don't think. And yet the SEIU and the, the public unions are doing their very best to, to sink us as an economy. But what is it about unions that make them so special? There are a bunch of people who, they're the only institutions in this society who are entirely self-seeking. They provide nothing for the general wheel. They provide for themselves. They grab the work. They say, this is my work because I grabbed it. And nobody else can do this work. And if you want me to do this work, you're going to have to pay me as much as I want to work on this work. What kind of nonsense is that? And why should the government get involved in supporting such uh, being uh, directed to the few at the expense of the many. Why should they be directed to the few? What is it that makes unions so sacrosanct in this society that we don't even talk about them uh, in any negative way in, in times of major campaigns like now? I haven't heard unions mentioned in this campaign uh, at all, I don't think. And yet the SEIU and the, the public unions are 
doing their very best to, to sink us as an economy. But what is it about unions that make them so special? They're a bunch of people who, they're the only institutions in this society who are entirely self-seeking. They provide nothing for the general wheel. They provide for themselves. They grab the work. They say, this is my work because I grabbed it. And nobody else can do this work. And if you want me to do this work, you're going to have to pay me as much as I want to work on this work. What kind of nonsense is that? Why should the government get involved in supporting essentially? I don't know. Anyhow, you got anything to add to that? Well, I think, I think you stated it correctly. It's, uh, it's a challenge, uh, partly because it only does affect a small group of people. And, and we've talked about billions at stake, but last night in the debate, uh, you hear about trillions being talked about. So is it uh, important enough and why stir up the ire uh, of the unions? Uh, but in reality, uh, where there have been some situations where the taxpayers have been made aware through uh, public grassroots efforts uh, of what's going on, and they have uh, risen up and, and spoken out against it. And uh, certainly we've seen this at the state level where some of the prevailing wage laws that have been put in place have been scaled back as people have recognized that they are a waste of taxpayer dollars and they are a set aside for just this small special interest group. And it's not about saying unions shouldn't work on public projects or be paid what they're paid on the market rate. Go ahead. Uh, it's whether the rate should be pegged to and, and where not, other contractors should be forced to toe their line uh, when they don't, in fact, prevail. Uh, that's, that's really what the issue is about. Why should taxpayers be paying more uh, to this small group uh, than they do than, than the private sector does? Why shouldn't taxpayers get an equally good deal? So that argument has in fact prevailed, uh, but it's an expensive proposition and there are a lot of issues uh, that are assaulting the public and politicians. Um, and certainly the unions fight hard to maintain this, uh, this piece of the pie that was uh, given to them decades ago. Um, and of course, we have inertia to deal with. It's just been around so long that people think that's the way it's supposed to be. It just does not have to be that way. Let me, let me add one thing there. It's sort of a sidelight, but something that uh, Maury said reminded me of. You know, the unions are fond of saying, hey, you know, you need something like the Davis-Bacon Act to level the playing field, make sure that every contractor has the same expenses. You've got to level the playing field. Yeah, okay. Well, let's level the playing field between a professional basketball team that has uh, uh, players who are seven feet tall and the pickup team whose players are six feet tall by making all those who are six feet tall play on stilts. Boy, that, that was a playing field, wasn't it? Everybody's just as tall. Uh, it's that kind of nonsense that, that uh, uh, is, is so debilitating in the argumentation over Davis-Bacon. To level the playing field by hobbling or crippling or making inefficient or more expensive your competitors through government action is not an honorable way to level the playing field. Unions claim that you get what you pay for, the unions are much more productive. If that's in fact true, if the unions justify their own elevated wages by their productivity and their output, we don't need the Davis-Bacon Act, do we? Union contractors could hire their people at their union rates, and non-union contractors would have to hire many more at their non-union rates because none was good. But I'll work under the bar. I don't need a Davis-Bacon Act for anything. 
unions actually have quite a large wage deficit uh, to overcome. And the union workers are not that much more productive than non-union workers, especially in recent times. There was a time 50 years ago when non-union contractors tended to be house builders. But there are now huge non-union contractors who have every capability that the unions do. And they'll manage to you know, build great buildings and stand up. There's no difference in the quality of the output between the union building or non-union built building. Can't tell them apart. And it's just, I, I, I just hate the idea that the whole country is devoted through its legal administrators, through the, the Department of Labor, to protecting a group of people whose only thing in life is that they said, hey, this is our work and nobody else can do it. I'm not sure that was good, but I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, Questions? Yeah, how about uh, right down front here first? And we'll get your question next. Thanks. Uh, this question is for both of you. Um, Davis Bacon. Uh, you want to identify yourself first? Uh, ben Brubeck with Associated Builders and Contractors. Um, Davis Bacon advocates claim that without a Davis Bacon wage rate, there'll be a race to the bottom. Um, contractors will pay their employees nothing. There'll be slave wages. The construction will be shoddy. And uh, in response, Davis Bacon advocates have helped pass laws in over 30 states. Um, uh, applying a similar law, Little Davis-Bacon Act, onto state and state-assisted construction projects. Um, and they've used these similar claims to defend these laws over the years. Now, there have been some states that have repealed their Davis-Bacon state laws, so it kind of gives us a little bit of a laboratory of what it might look like at the federal level should we ever repeal. Can you speak to the quality of construction, the wage rates in some of those states that have repealed and, and what's happened there? Sure. You want to go first? You want well, to, go first? My, to my knowledge, uh, there's been no... Uh, decrease in quality there's been no none of the claimed impacts uh, from the pro prevailing wage side have come to fruition uh, and instead the taxpayers have found that the cost savings uh, for the government uh, have proved out as logically you would think automatically they would uh, there have been a number of studies that the unions have uh, tried to come up with to show that on a like a per seat basis in classrooms prevailing wage, non-prevailing wage, that somehow uh, the government does get more uh, productivity and therefore gets what it pays for, as they say. Arman has uh, done a great study re refuting those uh, flawed uh, claims. Uh, I don't think it's part of this book because it deals with uh, uh, state prevailing wage. But it, it's so counterintuitive, and it should be obvious, that if you inflate the wages, which are a major component of all construction, uh, the cost is going to go up. Uh, and in reality, uh, in the market where nationwide 85% of the work is being done, non-union on all the private work, uh, you have high quality work being done now, uh, and fr frankly for several decades now, uh, by the non-union sector. Uh, the unions uh, have no claim to the better uh, work. I could list uh, most of the projects uh, in this area, uh, the big ones uh, that you might think of, uh, like FedEx Field or Camden Yards or uh, uh, all the uh, major uh, projects that are going on are being done on a non-union basis. So there is simply no reason to think that by repealing Davis-Bacon, you do anything other than return government projects to what is truly prevailing in the market. 
there, there are, certainly are instances where unions can prove their productivity, uh, where they can be competitive with non-union companies because their, their members are highly trained and highly skilled and do great work. And sometimes it happens, but it's really rare. Uh, by and large, the difference between union rates and non-union rates is that union rates are a whole lot higher, and what you get for that is higher wage cost. You don't get more productivity, you don't get more of anything. Uh, I say they're individual exceptions always, but consider. Uh, well, just how much can you improve the productivity of a flagman on a construction site by paying him $37 an hour, which is an actual prevailing rate uh, for flagmen in Pennsylvania, uh, compared to somebody who's paying, uh, being paid uh, $850. Now, we're talking about high steel erectors, you're talking about uh, you know, highly skilled construction workers. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, there are people who are more skilled than others. But non-union construction recognizes this. Non-union construction goes out and pays people for their skill level. They pay, sometimes union rates are even higher than union rates for their skilled mechanics, but they use fewer of them. They use the lead mechanic who is highly skilled, backed up by a bunch of semi-skilled people, instead of a bunch of skilled and semi-skilled union people who are all being paid the same rate despite the fact that their, their actual output productivity is different. The non-union structure is simply a better one. It rewards performance, uh, and it recognizes there are some jobs that really are minimum wage jobs. And why should you pay people five times the minimum wage uh, to do a minimum wage job like waving a flag on a construction site? The other issue on productivity is, if you think about it, it's a perverse, it's a reverse incentive. Uh, to a worker on a Davis-Bacon job, why should they finish quicker because, and then go back to the private work where they're going to make less? Instead, and I hear this all the time from contractors who are confronted with this, uh, they're going to stretch it out. They're going to be less productive. The longer they stretch it out, the longer they'll get the uh, inflated rates on the government work. Uh, again, if the government rates were being set at a true market rate, that would not be the problem. But government can never set rates at a true market rate. Only the market sets rates at a true market rate. The government makes stabs at it. It picks winners and losers, but it never sets the rate at the market rate. Only the market does it. That's right. Anybody that's ever studied central planning, uh, as I did at the University of Virginia when I was in grad school, uh, this is kind of like the Soviet bureaucracy when you read Armin's uh, tale about what's going on. Uh, so it's central planning versus the market. Also, uh, if you've taken labor economics at all, you know that what happens is that the unions can price themselves out of the market and people substitute non-union work, so the demand for non-union workers is increasing more jobs there, less jobs for the union workers. Um, and I always tell my students, you don't want to put the, uh, the cart before the horse. Uh, if your teenage son comes up or daughter comes up and says, you know, Dad, you know, uh, if you pay me more, I'll work harder. No, you work harder, then I'll pay you more, you know. And the way you find out what you're worth is if you can get a job from somebody else. Uh, so you can't just pay anybody anything they want. If, you, if you're more productive, you go down the road and uh, say, I'm more productive, I want more than this wage rate. Uh, under competition, you're going to get it. Um, so the economics is, is clearer uh, in my mind. Um, and it's a shame we have these impediments into the market system. If we want job creation, the market's going to create a lot more jobs than, than some union, uh, which restricts labor. 
And then you get the old lump of labor sum fallacy that there's only so many jobs to go around. They practice that in France for years, uh, restricting hours and so forth. But it's true in a way, a, a fallacy can have some truth, but it's uh, uh, not total truth. Uh, if you have a wage rate set above the market by the labor union, there are only so many jobs to go around. Whereas in a market, uh, everybody that wants to work at the, at the prevailing market wage can find a job at that wage rate. So it's just, you know, that's why Armand's probably very frustrated over the years seeing all this and knowing this and then, uh, you know, seeing that not much is done on it. Uh, but anyway, uh, why don't we go on to, uh, I think, did, did you have a question? We'll go right here and then we'll, we'll get your question next. Hi, I'm Suzanne with the National Association of Home Builders. Mr. Baskin, can you expand at all on the Department of Labor's position in the city center case? On, on their position on what? In the city center case, how specifically they could expand Davis-Bacon requirements on something that has no federal money. Right. Uh, the question was about the city center case. And their, their claim, or first, they ruled that it did not apply uh, within the department. And then the uh, career person who made that ruling was overruled by a political appointee. Uh, and that, in turn, is being appealed. But uh, while it's on appeal, their, their rationale uh, appears to have been that um, there is public uh, aspects to it, even though there are not public money. There are roads that go up to it, among other things. <laughs> well, yes, roads that go up to it, and uh, uh, public benefits of which the same public benefits appear on all uh, large projects. Uh, so it's really difficult to uh, articulate what they uh, really have in mind, although they have a multi-page decision trying to justify the unjustifiable. Um, it is the first project, and it's been conceded, it's the first project uh, in the history of the Act in which uh, Davis-Bacon has been applied with no public funding or public uh, ownership uh, of the project. should be made clear, this is a private development we're talking about. Um, it is um, uh, going to be private, private buildings and, and uh, no public offices, no government offices. There's been some cases where government offices were going to be in other projects, and that was the justification for Davis-Bacon. That's not true here either. So we'll see. Uh, again, it is uh, mired in litigation uh, for the foreseeable future, but uh, we have seen as a result of this case some other projects uh, around the country where the uh, Labor Department's trying to push the envelope uh, to uh, in include Davis-Bacon where in places where it's never been before. So despite all of the evidence about the uh, insidious effects of Davis-Bacon, the current administration is trying to expand it. Right here. We'll, we'll get you next. Let's see. Uh, hi, Bob Brownholder. Um, I'm a commercial developer here in town. And um, I think one of, the, one of the questions I have is on a project labor agreement uh, when when there's a project labor agreement on a project the non-union uh, subcontractors have to uh, make contributions to the union pension plans uh, or their employees do and then when the project is over those contributions stay with the pension plan but the non-union employee is not covered by the pension um, does the same thing apply on a Davis-Bacon project where a non-union employee um, is employed? Uh, it, it does not uh, normally uh, because 
Davis Bacon, while there's uh, some sort of relationships between Davis Bacon and project labor agreements, and those of you who aren't familiar, those are agreements that are pretty controversial by themselves in which uh, government owners typically uh, have tried to mandate that uh, all contractors agree to work under union uh, contracts uh, for that project. It's actually worse than Davis-Bacon. And the reason is because Davis-Bacon, it says you have to pay the union wage rate and you also have to pay an amount of fringe benefits equal to what's been found to be prevailing often again union. But they have uh, agreed that it's only the amount uh, that has to be paid, not the specific fringe benefits. So the contractors, if only Davis-Bacon applies, they normally do not have to sign on to a specific union plan. They can have their own 401k, for example, or their own insurance, uh, which most of them do, that they get credit for as long as it matches the amount of the union benefits. And then if it doesn't, they can make up the difference in cash. So they're still paying an inflated amount, uh, more than the market would require them to pay, but they are at least, I guess, the one uh, consolation, the one, I, don't, I hate to call it good news about Davis-Bacon, compared to these project labor agreements. Uh, they, don't, they are not stuck with the actual union uh, fringe benefit program. Uh, project labor agreements, a great subject for one of your future forums, uh, really much worse situation than Davis-Bacon and, and highly controversial, uh, another though big waste of taxpayer dollars. Yeah, how about back here, you had a question, so. Uh, my name is Samar Chatterjee from SAFE Foundation. Um, I think I understand your frustration. I mean, I'm sure this is not the only area that we have frustrations with uh, in this country. There are a lot of, I call this kind of a system as an apartheid system, you know. Uh, basically, you give some people way up here and others are down here. So this is <laughs> an apartheid system. Now, uh, I was amazed when George Bush, as president, he was pointed out some scandal and some problem. He said, you know, in this country, we investigate everything very, very thoroughly. No bad things would ever exist. And, and you know, a person like that gets elected as pre president. Of course, the, the Canadian uh, prime minister's uh, deputy called him a moron. So I would say there are, I mean, if a president, a moron gets elected as president, there are a lot of congressmen and senators who are like that, probably worse than that. Uh, given that situation, I can understand why when you bring about point out such a serious problem where something needs to be done, in my opinion, and it doesn't get done, what kind of a democracy do we have, really? And uh, it's, it's really a shame, because I pointed out some problems in the immigration system writing to congressmen, senators, <laughs> everyone else. Nothing seems to be done, because there are rackets. And so is there some bribery or kickbacks being paid by these unions to these elected officials who you know, once you get your pocket filled, I mean, j just the way we buy our elections, you know, like you see the presidential, everybody's getting 100 and, uh, 800 million, 700 million, what tr trillion. Uh, when you get your pocket filled, you can just look the other way when a complaint is brought. Uh, let me answer the, the, the second thing first, and then I'll, I'll get back to the point you made earlier. Uh, our, uh, our, our bribes paid uh, to, to have this kind of benefit? And the answer is yes, by the bucket full. Uh, except they don't go into individuals' pockets. Uh, they're part of the rent-seeking that goes into the 
thousands and thousands of SAIEU people who are out there right now who are stopping around at Romney campaign uh, headquarters and whatever and shouting nasty things out of being paid $11 an hour or whatever to go campaign, the Obama phone lady, all that stuff. Uh, the, the payback is a political payback. Uh, and it is what uh, I've called another arena rent, rent seeking. The, uh, uh, the, the unions invest in individual legislators who will toe the line of union interests. And it's been going on that way for a great long time. There's another point you made uh, earlier there that I'd like to respond to too, though, or at least point out something. You said uh, that George Bush promised that, well, he'd, he'd investigate everything very, very thoroughly. And you know, I heard something like that last night in the debate. It, it, it seems to me that, that I, I heard one of the presidential uh, candidates last night say we're really, really going to investigate what happened in Syria there. And we're going to hold people accountable for that. We're really going to investigate that. Okay? Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> well, lest, lest we uh, put all the blame on George Bush, uh, it should be pointed out that uh, after Hurricane... Well, but it's, uh, it's important to acknowledge after Hurricane Katrina, uh, the president uh, attempted to um, suspend uh, Davis-Bacon just for the purpose of facilitating the reconstruction effort, uh, which, uh, which would have helped, but was uh, literally shouted down by uh, folks in Congress, uh, where probably the majority of the blame lies for Davis-Bacon. It was Congress that, that passed it. Uh, and the, the selling point, uh, and the reason why it's always been a politically tough vote to take, uh, I guess, is that, that the unions have effectively said, you're going to be hurting the wages for the, uh, the workers uh, by no longer inflating them. That's what folks don't really get about that argument, but that argument has uh, proved effective uh, over the years. Uh, that somehow returning uh, wages for construction workers on government contracts to the market rates uh, is um, is somehow is hurting them as opposed to giving them what the kind of rates that they are entitled to fair wages uh, at market rates and so uh, Congress has not uh, taken any um, action to fix Davis Bacon, and uh, there have been a series of uh, votes in the House uh, over the last uh, year or two, but of course it's a divided Congress. Uh, this is a democracy. Uh, the elections do make a difference. I hear there's an election coming up, uh, and maybe uh, something will change that will that will make that difference in a, in a new administration. But it's pretty clear that it would only be if it's a, a new administration. Uh, any other questions? Okay, well, uh, we will proceed to go to lunch. Uh, the lunch is in the dining hall on the second floor, so you could take the elevator up, but you probably should walk to get some exercise up, up the stairs. Uh, and let's thank Armand and Maurice uh, for very nice presentations. <laughs>